the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Chair and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, we just want to mention we've got a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a buck there, or if not, maybe leave us a review on iTunes. Either way, we're very thankful for all of you for listening to the show. This week, we're welcoming back Grant Maxwell to discuss his book, which we've already discussed at, at length, Integration and Difference, Constructing a Mythic Dialectic. This time, we're going to kind of focus on three specific chapters, those being the chapter on Spinoza, Nietzsche, and Deleuze. Grant, thanks so much for joining us, and we're looking forward to a, to a hearty discussion this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's good to be back on the show. We already had a nice little little pregame. I hate I hate that sometimes the best conversations happen before <laughs> right, cuff. and after recording. <laughs> so that's why we kind of jumped in today. Grant, obviously, for the listeners out there, we've had you on before. We had a really nice conversation the last time. You can find that. I assume the the video is also up on YouTube. We've we haven't put be, all I of think. our content, but yeah, I mean, you can. Just to just to before I'll link start, everything. I'll put everything in the show. Yeah, yeah. Before we start, you know, because some people don't necessarily. Right. Some people like YouTube. You can you can follow us on YouTube as well. So anyway, so Grant, welcome back. And uh, I think we asked you the origin story question, right? Of your mm -hmm. your your like philosophy, you know, whether it be superhero or supervillain uh, <laughs> origin story. So I, I was kind of telling you we were going to maybe reverse engineer this type of question. And this is the kind of question that you always hear when you're growing up or looking back, you know, not to get Oedipal too early, but, <laughs> but this is just this question of childhood is like, because we asked you about when did philosophy, theory, et cetera, when did you know, just thinking in general, like strike you and, and grab you. I kind mm -hmm. of was thinking, what's the alternative Grant Maxwell, like in an alternate universe, or if you'd followed your kind of first trajectory towards some, you know, higher aspiration, if you can recall maybe this alternate Grant that I remember when I was a kid, I was fascinated by dinosaurs, right? And I wanted to be a paleontologist, or I guess archaeologist, really. I mean, it same was, for me. I mean, we were born on the same day, so Coop and I have some. Were you? That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. We we share a birthday, different uh, year, but same oh, different year. Okay, okay. Few so years, not. few years apart. You know, brother from another mother, or <laughs> from another origin. But yeah, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I can remember when I was twelve. 
I wanted to be a doctor, maybe a, maybe a psychoanalyst, but like, then I, you know, I, I kind of had this feeling that maybe that's too much baggage to deal with constantly dealing with other people's problems. Cause either you're overwhelmed by it or you already like, you know, Lacan, you have to do the, the analyte discourse and put up the mirror and, and just that you just have to be numb to it. So I'm just wondering, just wondering about if you can recall sort of a moment in your life when you, when you can remember like, Oh yeah, I remember I wanted to, to do this or that. If it's similar or related to academic trajectories, that's fine. But maybe you have something similar, like you wanted, you were interested in dinosaurs or whatnot. I don't know. My path has been remarkably consistent. So my parents, my dad is a musician. He's a guitar player. And my mom is, is a writer. Um, and she actually ended up getting her PhD in religion when I was a teenager. And so that was just sort of always my path, was I wanted to be both a writer, some kind of academic, most likely, and a musician. And so when I went to, to undergrad, my favorite professor was an English professor. For a while, I thought maybe I wanted to be a novelist. And then for a long time, I thought I wanted to be a literary critic. And I actually ended up getting my PhD in English. But what I realized over the course of my graduate studies was that I was much more drawn to the the theory and just specifically the French philosophy. So, you know, Derrida right. and Foucault, and I was also reading William James and Bergson. It's sort of always been been a balance between um, writing and music. There was definitely a, about a 10-year period from my late teens to my, I don't know, you know, mid-20s, maybe even late-20s, where I wanted to be a professional musician. Were you the one that posted pictures of of like your band at some no, point on Twitter? I think I posted a, a picture of my pedal board. I this is actually okay. okay. We we're talking about um, uh, Vern. Vern and I were talking about this because we both sing in bands on the side. Right. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, Vern Sisney. I find that they're a great complement to one another because philosophy is so internal and solitary, and you really are, you're pushing your mind. And also, the other thing about philosophy is that is that everything takes so long. I mean, you write a book and, and you don't get feedback on it for, for years. Right. Pieces. But with music, it's just immediate. You play a song to someone and they're standing right there and you you react with the audience. And it's much more um, focused on on affect. And right. then it's a really nice balance that sort of defined my whole tra trajectory. That's great. And I'm glad that you did go into the edible sphere and brought up the parents, you know, like, I mean, the reason why I, I went into academia, even if, you know, I'm not going for a tenure track or whatever, but you know, I went to grad school, blah, blah, blah. My dad was, a he was the chair of computer sciences at, uh, at the local university. My mom was a, was a librarian. So she, so books were, was always a, a thing in my life. And so I can kind of see how that influenced me from, you know, my early love of, of dinosaurs to, to books and things like that. Coop, do you want to, you want to add in about, well, I was going to, you probably mentioned this last time, but I can't, which, uh, which degree did you pursue at the university of Texas? Cause you were um, in Austin so, for a while, right? Yeah. I yeah. I went to, went to college in Austin and you're, are you still in Austin Cooper? Yeah. yeah. I was in, um, uh, plan two and English. So I did a double, double major, um, which is like the plan two, like honors, and English. My favorite professor there was Adam Zachary Newton, who ended up being the head of the English department at uh, Yeshiva University in New York. Just okay. this brilliant literary theorist. 
you know, what I realized sort of toward the end of my my coursework in, in grad school was that I was actually much more interested in what you could do with these texts than the the novels themselves. I mean, I, I love literature. Right. I still read some occasionally, but it was sort of like, I think I might be a philosopher. <laughs> right, right. I mean, <laughs> it, it was sort of, I didn't want to like go back and start over with grad school at that point. So I just, I just continued on. And I, I think when I realized that I was sort of in the early stages of my dissertation or like studying for my, my oral exams or something like that. I just followed through and wrote a book about the philosophy of rock and roll, specifically about right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> I tried to sort of marry my two uh, primary interests there. During that time, when I was when I was studying for my orals, I actually came up with a really detailed outline of of my my book after what my dissertation became. How does it feel? My book after that is called The Dynamics of Transformation. And so I actually came up with that when I was when I was still in grad school, and I was sort of just trying to get through <laughs> the right. PhD so I could get to what I really wanted to do. I still have fondness for both of those books, but I think that you know integration and difference to me is where my thinking sort of really came into its maturity. I'd say I was talking to Vern about this because he told me recently that he he actually read the Dynamics of Transformation, which was my my first purely philosophy book, and so that was before I had read Deleuze. And he, you know, he told me he he loved it and he was very complimentary about it. And so, and I was almost, that, that kind of made me feel better about it because there were certain things in there that were a bit, that I would have, I would have done differently if I had known about Deleuze's critique of Hegel and things. Right. That was really nice to hear from him that he, he appreciated what I was doing. I mean, to a certain extent, the, the Deleuze-Hegel connection has been, I don't want to say it's a dead horse. It's been done and... It will continue to to be done, obviously. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I told you about, there's a book by Veronique Bergen that's on Deleuze's ontology because there are some currents in Deleuze that don't really want to focus on or maybe even deny that Deleuze is interested in ontology or has an ontology where he says very clearly, and as you know, like in dialogues, negotiations elsewhere, like, I think of philosophy as a system, I'm a metaphysician, et cetera. But she, she's got a 100-page book in French that's all about this Deleuze-Hegel connection and how they're the black knight of one another. And it's one of my dreams to find a publisher crazy enough to publish that book. Maybe I'll write a, a grant proposal here in a year or two. But anyway, yeah, the Hegel-Deleuze thing, you know, that it's okay that, that you didn't, you know, you don't have to talk about it in every book. It's kind of one of those things that's that's always a uh, an interesting topic to uh, to see where people fall on because some some of the Hegelians, as we've seen Zizek do, for example, get get a little testy about mm -hmm. the uh, <laughs> about the conflict. It's interesting. You you, you answered my follow up question about mm -hmm. uh, about um, when your interests might have changed. I mean, maybe you know you even kind of like answered the aside about wanting to, you know, aspiring musician. But I guess since we are talking about your, what you consider your mature work, I was interested, you know, it's published in the Rutledge series, which seems like a new series, just seeing that they, um, and I could be wrong because I only saw in your book, you know, they list three titles, including yours. So maybe it is a, it is a... Um, I think there are like maybe 20 books in that series now. It's been, okay. it's been going for maybe, maybe like 10 years. Okay, so that's five, not too five, young. I mean, I'm not sure exactly, but perhaps they they just didn't want to spend another page. They don't want to cite all of their 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 backlog, I guess. 
I did want to ask you at least just to mm. jump in because it's it's obvious about your interest in philosophy. We mentioned Deleuze, Hegel, and we're talking about Spinoza and Nietzsche, Deleuze today, or at least that was what we we read for today. But I I do want to give you a chance just off off the cuff or just at the start because I know we didn't go deeper into it last time, but I, I did want to give you a chance to talk about the and psychoanalysis of the series because you have chapters on Jung, on Hillman. And, you know, for someone like me, I'm kind of like, hey, where's the chapter on, on Freud and Lacan, right? But I did want to ask you about this and psychoanalysis and what perhaps maybe that's the other side of the story is, is your interest in psychoanalysis in your studies and specifically Jung and, and Hellman. Um, that to me is, is kind of fertile soil to till. And so I, I kind of want to give you a chance to, to maybe talk about that a little bit before we move on. The title of the series, I think, is a little deceptive because it seems to me that maybe the slight majority of the books are more about Jung than about Freud. And of course, Jung was was deeply involved in the early development of psychoanalysis. I mean, you know, Freud called Jung his his um is something like his 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 son and heir or something like that. Right. His, crown, his crown prince is what he called him. Crown prince. Um, oh, okay. yeah. Kind of like the Prince of Philosophy, Spinoza, right? You know, uh... <laughs> yeah. But it was he was sort of designated him as his heir, and Jung was um, he was the the editor of the Yarbrook, the, the the Journal of Psychoanalysis, and he was voted the president of the Psychoanalytic Association, the International Psychoanalytic Association for Life, and so they were they were very close, and you know this sort of. Um, explicitly father-son relationship and then they had their break i think what was it like 1913 around there yeah it was around the first world war right yeah and so young young kind of descended into his into his uh sort of transformative dark night of the soul period where he invented a lot of his greatest concepts he called his his psychology analytic psychology so instead of psychoanalysis, it's right. psychology. So it's it's he was I think he was just trying to stick as close to psychoanalysis as possible. It's interesting. Just just uh, before you continue, uh, it's mm -hmm. interesting that perhaps that break from Freud allowed him the way that you you set it up. I mean, it seems like it potentially allowed him a little bit more freedom in creativity in diverging more. I mean, he had already been vocal about certain things. For example, the libido. And it's if it's for Freud, it's primarily sexual in, in, in energy for Jung, not so much. Obviously, there are more. That's one of the, the key points. But it seems like that break, that disinheritance allowed him a certain freedom to go places that perhaps he may have censored, you know, not to bring the superego in. But if we're talking about Freud is like, you know, he's like quintessential overbearing father, even if I think in the correspondences I've read and, and the biographies, he does seem more like a friendly grandfatherly type. But when it comes to psychoanalysis, which is his kind of, you know, despite all of his children, that's his like baby, he could be a little dogmatic, right? So I think that um, that break perhaps was a fruitful one and, and for the better. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think their primary disagreements were the primacy of the Oedipal complex. And right, so okay. Zizek actually <laughs> says that, that this is one of the, that Deleuze and Guattari and anti-Oedipus were really carrying forward the Jungian mm, critique mm -hmm. of, of this exclusive privileging of the Oedipal complex. But that what Jung himself says is that the primary 
issue that came between them was Jung was becoming very interested in occult modes of thought and right. you know, what Deleuze and Guattari called the communication of unconsciousness, mm-hmm. which is sort of like unconscious telepathic communication, precognition, which Deleuze and Guattari talk about this. I think it's in a footnote of, I think it's Anti-Oedipus, mm-hmm. where Spinoza was interested in this and Bergson. And what Jung says about Freud is that Freud he was actually open to telepathy in principle. But what he said was that we have to create psychoanalysis as this rational bulwark against yeah. the black tide of mud of occultism, is what he That's right. It. That's right. Um, this is something that actually um, Stengers and Leon Chertok go into in great depth in their book about, it's called a, a critique, of, critique of psychoanalytic reason. They go into depth about, about that Freud wasn't actually he was open to the idea of of telepathy, but he wanted to reject it because in the interest of establishing psychoanalysis as this sort of rationalist dogma, explicitly. And so it was the strategic choice in terms of the promulgation of psychoanalytic theory rather than than a primarily theoretical concern about the efficacy of this communication of unconsciousness that all of these other philosophers were very open to. So I, I, I found, that, found that pretty interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to think that perhaps Jung influenced Freud to write that one paper on telepathy, what, in the maybe the late 20s, so towards the end of his life, he, right. has, he has that one, if one were to write about Freud in the occult, that'd be a primary source to go to. And uh, I mean, that's definitely fascinating. And and you're right to think about Freud's, as I said, you know, he's very protective of his of his baby of psychoanalysis and, and trying to not only obviously establish it as a science or on scientific principles, we can see that he's kind of concerned with this, especially when he ventures into speculative hypotheses, like in, um, I'm thinking of, um, instincts and their vicissitudes right he starts off it's one of my favorite opening paragraphs of of any piece of literature where freud kind of says like sciences aren't built on hard and fast there's a little bit of groping that goes along the way a little bit of speculation and psychoanalysis even more so has to be able to venture but at the same time you know he's he that's the image that's not just the foundation he's trying to set he also is concerned about its image and how it's perceived by obviously by the um, by the sciences, by the other sciences and thinking in general, academia in general, how it's received, because it's it's very clear that uh, he was fighting on different fronts, some of them also racist fronts right. about yeah. about. I think we talked about this a little bit right last time, maybe when we brought up Jung, you know, there was there was also perhaps and not to say this was the sole or even primary reason, but there was also this, perhaps this impetus on Freud's part to think of Jung as as giving some credibility outside of a a Jewish-centered science that he was, that's one of the battles he was fighting, right? Is like right. Yeah. this, yeah, this anti-Semitic attack. Yeah. Right. What about Helen though? Because maybe this is just coincidence, but you know, Craig, we, we mentioned beforehand in the discussions, you know, Craig over at Ass Horizon, one of our friends, you know, he's very interested in Hillman and outside of you and um, you and Craig and my father-in-law, who is a Jungian analyst, oh, uh, cool. it's kind of a, 
yeah. Uh, how about that? The, 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 the Christmas dinners are always fun. You know, when mm -hmm. I, I want to bring up Freud and he's, he's <laughs> not so receptive, but I, I, outside of you three, I haven't really heard much about Hillman's work. And, mm -hmm. um, and so it was kind of fascinating to, to hear a little bit more about this thinker. Do you see him continuing this kind of Jungian lineage or is he more adjacent? I think he's directly prolonging Jung's project. And he's also very, very, thinks a lot about Freud as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think what he does with Jung is Jung had this 10, you know, Jung had created so many great concepts, but he definitely had this tendency to emphasize this return to wholeness and oneness that's sort yeah. of resonant with the Hegelian dialectic, even though he was actually somewhat critical of Hegel. When he talked about philosophy, he tended to say he was more Kantian. But I think in reality, his philosophical underpinning is much more Hegelian. And so Hillman really draws from Jung a lot. And especially, I think, from Jung problematized this in his later work, especially by the end of his life in uh, Mysterium Conjunctionis, which is the book that I, I talk about in Integration and Difference. But he tended to really emphasize this, you know, sort of the, the Christ archetype and this, this archetype of of wholeness, of individuation as, as leading back to the, the reconciliation of the conscious and unconscious and the, the integration of the shadow and things like that. What Hillman does is he really draws out the polycentric aspect of Jung's late work on alchemy. He calls it a, you know, a polytheistic psychology. Hillman was pretty critical of, of Christianity in a, in a way that really resonates with Nietzsche, I think. So I think he carried Jung's Jung's concepts further. And actually, Hillman is, of all the psychologists I've read, to me, Hillman is the closest to Deleuze and Guattari. Um, his book, um, Revisioning Psychology, which he published in 1975, it has remarkable parallels with anti-Oedipus and with difference in repetition. I write about this in the book. This really hasn't been mentioned very often, but of course, it also hasn't really been mentioned that very often that Deleuze was actually really interested in Jung's work. And he, he right. makes quite a few complimentary comments about Jung from the 50s until you know, the 80s. And in the, the, the Labasadere interview, he's, you know, he's talking about this anecdote that he loves, loves from Jung. And, about the ossuary, right? Yeah, about the ossuary. I think yeah, we talked about that last time. It's a wonderful anecdote. You guys can look it up. I forget exactly which... It could be D for desire, but I could be wrong. That's probably yeah. wrong. In any case, yeah, the, I'll just say before you continue, you know, Jung comes to Freud with a dream, talks about having these dreams of, of all of these bones, right, of an ossuary. And mm -hmm. Freud interprets it as a singular bone about death, et cetera. And, and Deleuze yeah. is kind of taking Jung's side, saying like, Freud doesn't get it. It's kind of the one or several wolves thing, but one or several bones, exactly. right? And ossuary yeah. isn't, isn't one bone. It's hundreds, thousands of bones. Anyway, go on. The multiplicity of the bones. Multiplicity, yeah. yeah, yeah. You were saying that Deleuze, it, the connection to Jung and Deleuze mm -hmm. is not it's as explored. You obviously go to great lengths to, to help rectify that. I think Christian Kerslake is the other yes. thinker yeah. who, has, uh, who has written on Deleuze and Jung. More yeah, his than... book um, Deleuze and the Unconscious from right. 2007. Yeah. He's sort of the pioneer of looking at resonances between Deleuze and Jung, and and I mean they're explicit resonances. They're it, right. 
that Deleuze was explicitly drawing on on Jung's concepts. You know, he even uses the word archetype in both Nietzsche and philosophy, and in uh, Proust and Signs. So it's just it's just a really interesting um, area. There's also another a collected volume that was published, I think, last year or two, a couple of years ago, edited by Roderick Main and a couple other of his colleagues called um, Jung, Deleuze, and the Problematic Whole, which has some great, great essays in it. Okay, wow. I haven't heard of that. That actually sounds fascinating. I'm, you know, it's interesting reading, rereading your, your work. I think I just kind of glossed over this part before, but in this is something I, I learned from you. I didn't know in uh, Birth of Tragedy, when Nietzsche is putting forth the archetypes of Dionysus and Apollo, he uses the term, basically the German equivalent, what is it, Urbilden? Urbilder, for, yeah. For, 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 okay, yeah, for, for, for archetypes. And that was something that I hadn't thought of, or I hadn't, I hadn't seen anyone else talk about it, and I hadn't caught sight of. So that was, that was uh, I, definitely interesting. That's very likely the primary source that Jung took took this concept of the archetypes from was really birth of tragedy. I mean, he is, he is also looking at, you know, Christian scholastics and ancient philosophy, but I, I think, I think, yeah, I think Nietzsche was, if you had to pick his one biggest influence besides Freud, it's probably Nietzsche. Something Freud was very glib about, right? He, he and very tight lipped about, he didn't want to really talk about, about Nietzsche or was worried that Nietzsche might've already overcoded all of his thoughts. But anyway, yeah. I don't think he he read Nietzsche until until later until after his break with Jung and it was actually I think it was it was Lou Salome who right who, that it was sort of Nietzsche's had this intense friendships bordering on romantic relationship with right. Salome and then she became I don't remember I think did she become a psychoanalyst or, did, or was she just friends with Freud and she introduced Freud to the I don't think she was a patient right but she right. may have gone into some training she may have been in the in the Vienna circle not mm-hmm. obviously a different Vienna circle in the circles of you know the Austrian higher ups or I don't even know if that's even the right word Coop cut this out I'm kind of tongue tied but yes I'm not sure that's something <laughs> I, I would have to look back on but you're right to point out that that makes sense as a link and also as you mentioned earlier i was just thinking when you said philosophy you do alone and then there is this time lag let's not say knock track like height right like there is this uh waiting period there's this lag and i was thinking about how much lag there was in in the reception of nietzsche you know not just in birth of tragedy which you write about and the kind of failed reception the fall from stardom if you will um but in all of his works it did take a little bit of time to be and then also in the face of so much misunderstanding which he anticipated but i mean his sister helped to spur some of that misunderstanding on and even if you know the nazis weren't really that interested in in nietzsche she tried to you know ingratiate his work uh, mm-hmm. to them so that wasn't the cause of the lag but that once his work started to be received that probably didn't help yeah, and I, I think you know Nietzsche almost intentionally provoked that misunderstanding. I mean, yes. I think you know yes. he was—he's he's sort of like the original edge lord, and it's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. his work wasn't really recognized until until the the early twentieth century when it started to become extremely influential. But you know, it's right, right. And and Homo, he predicts that his work will 
will be central to he's it's something like the the most profound collision of conscience consciences that the world has ever seen and of course that's what happened in the first half of the 20th century is nietzsche deeply influenced existentialism and sociology of max weber and post-structuralism and, and heidegger and but also and oh and psychoanalysis and, and right but but he was also very influential on the Nazis. So it's like this is why this is the the ambiguity. I agree that Deleuze says that that the Nazis misinterpreted him, but he definitely says some things that are very problematic. I mean, misogynist things, and also especially especially in the will to power, which you have to remember that wasn't a polished manuscript for publication. It was right. just notes in his notebook that his sister took out after he. <coughs> he went mad and formed it into a book. So who knows if he would have chosen to leave some of those wilder and more transgressive statements out. You know, he did, does say, I think what's in Beyond Good and Evil, he he disavows his earlier anti-Semitism. Nietzsche is extremely generative, extremely inconsistent. Yeah. (laughs) You know, he says a lot of different... That's what I love about, about Deleuze's reading of Nietzsche, because he renders he takes the most the most profound and difficult and obscure register of Nietzsche's thought and expresses it in this sort of more coherent way. There's still so much depth there that you can never get to the end of it. I returned to um, Nietzsche and philosophy recently, and it's just what a brilliant book. Even while quoting Nietzsche's apprehension towards systems and his mistrust mm-hmm. towards systems, Deleuze because of his, as I mentioned, his his belief that philosophy is a system, it's just that the notion of system has to change. It has to be thought in terms of heterogeneity, in terms of heterogenesis. We already said multiplicity, rhizome, you know, monism equals pluralism, blah, blah, blah. But he renders, as you said, uh, Nietzsche somewhat systematic. Maybe he doesn't fully formalize a system, but he he gives a systematic reading and rendering of yeah, Nietzsche. I mean, there are even moments in Nietzsche and philosophy where Deleuze contradicts himself. I, I recently wrote an article on Deleuze's employment of the figures of polytheism, the figures of the gods in Nietzsche and philosophy, which is it's fascinating because he, you know, of course he goes really deeply into the dialectical relation of Apollo and Dionysus and then the way Nietzsche sort of left Apollo behind but continued to talk about Dionysus for the rest of his his career until you know until the very end when he was signing his letters as Dionysus yeah there there are certain moments where it's there some of his concepts for instance for instance well we should we should talk about this because we were going to talk about the will to power um but how Nietzsche uses this very combative hierarchical warlike language to express the will to power so in, at one point in that text, Deleuze says that it's you know the farthest thing from combat and conflict. But it, but in, at another point, he says that that the will to power is it's it's warlike. So it's, so he's, he's <laughs> trying to trying to work this out for himself. I think. Well, it's got to be Heraclitian at least a little bit, right? You know, right. it's it's got to have that. It's interesting, right? It's like it's not combat, but it's agonistic. There's a kind of I'm not going to say sophistry going on there, but there's at least there's some sort of tightrope being walked. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean that's what's so great about Deleuze and Nietzsche is that they're always problematizing concepts. They're always trying to push 
these conceptions deeper and to think yeah. more subtly in the interstices of easy oppositions. So it's like one thing that Deleuze says, drawing on Nietzsche and Nietzschean philosophy, is that the will to power, it doesn't take place between individuals. It's the will to power is, is the struggle between forces. So Deleuze says that the will to power isn't a desire for power over others. This is like the, the most common mis you guys know this. This is the most common misunderstanding. It's not the master-slave dialectic that we are familiar with from oh. the phenomenology. No, it's it's not it's not the desire to dominate other people. This is this is the Nazis' primary interpretation, misinterpretation of Nietzsche. The will to power is the one who wants in the will, is the power is the one who wants in the will. And and so so Deleuze says that, and this is you know, drawing on, on Nietzsche explicitly summarizing Nietzsche or explicating him that power is the relations of forces. Right. And, and what I thought was really interesting, I'm, I'm thinking about this a lot because I'm, I'm working on, on something on this right now, but on page four of, of Nietzsche and philosophy, Deleuze says he equates the forces and the gods of polytheism. And so, you know, Deleuze in Nietzsche and philosophy, he primarily talks about Apollo and Dionysus but in, in Difference and Repetition, he's talking about Zeus and Athena and uh, Ares and Aphrodite and all these different gods of um, Greek and Roman pantheons. Even Namosthene could be considered among that, right? The right. gods yeah. of memory. Yeah. So, so what's, what's so interesting to me is what do Nietzsche and Deleuze mean by, what does Deleuze mean by this equation of the forces and the gods? And so I think it kind of goes back to Schelling, but but ultimately I think the ontological status of these divine figures is ambiguous. It's not that they're they're these transcendent divine persons, but it's also not that they're just merely these metaphors. They're not, they're not just metaphors. You actually anticipated one of my questions about this because I have noticed that you're one of the thinkers that changed my or I'm not gonna say changed my mind on this because that's I didn't have a stance on it. You you brought to mind this aspect. One of my questions was personal and banal. Because of your interest in this, are you, would you consider yourself something of a believer in a recognized religion, or is it more of a, a question of a kind of theosophy type deal with, with Spinoza? Is it pantheism? Is it atheism? Is it, you know, panentheism? So does it follow from your, your line of thinking? But the other thing, it's not a question, it's just now that you got me thinking about it, is perhaps these gods are something like the conceptual personae that Deleuze would go on to theorize in what is philosophy with, with Guattari? I think in terms of, of polytheism, but, but I'm a constructivist. So I think that, mm -hmm. I think that, that there's not an ultimate reality behind appearances, an ultimate grounding that, and truth that we can access. Right. That, that truth and reality are a, are a constructive negotiation between our modes of thought and the constraints and potentialities of process. So I just think that along with, I think, Deleuze and especially Hillman, that polytheism is, is a very generative mode of thought because, I mean, this is, this is okay, Deleuze is talking, about, is talking about the will and the will is the relationality of these different forces. And this is something he really extends in, in Difference and Repetition, where he's talking about that it's what what I call a mythical dialectic, where he talks about this moment in Plato where it's the Socratic Platonic dialectic, but then but then it 
sort of disrupts this this just you know method of division, which is you know this what Socrates always does is he right. divides and analyzes you know roles or professions and to make finer and finer distinctions. But then there's this introduction of this you know, mythical figure into the dialectic, and so that's exactly what Nietzsche is doing, for instance, in um, the Birth of Tragedy, where he later said that the Birth of Tragedy smells offensively Hegelian. It was his first work. But then he also, you know, in, in Eke Homo, he said it was his first transvaluation of all values, and it was a remarkable book. I think it's a great book. I think he thought, came up with some deeper concepts later. But ultimately, what he's doing is he's constructing a specifically, a mythical inflection of a specifically Hegelian dialectic, because it's, right. a, it's a single opposition between these two forces of Apollo and Dionysus, the sort of you know, conscious daylight consciousness, and then the instinctual unconscious. And what he realized later, like in Daybreak, he says that there are a multiplicity of gods that are in us. I think that's what's so interesting about Nietzsche and Deleuze's discussions of of the gods is you can't really pin down what the ontological status of these beings is. But they're they're even as late as um, what is philosophy, which is you know of course. Deleuze and Guattari's last book together, they're discussing Bergson's last book, The Two Sources of Morality and Religion. And in right. the book, they're talking about the faculty of fabulation. It's, it's you know, a fable. Fabulation, it's a creation of a story. And they're talking about the, the creation of gods as, as relational powers or potencies. They quote Bergson that they're, they're semi-personal powers. So they're not they're not these personal beings out there somewhere, but they're also not just these sort of figures for natural processes or or sort of psychological categories or things or things like that. I mean, and this is this all goes back to um, Schelling's late Berlin lecture on the history and what is it, the his, historical critical introduction to the philosophy of mythology, where his primary concern is what is the ontological status of these gods. Right. Of these he calls them potencies. And so there's there's a little ambiguity there because because in Nietzsche and philosophy, Deleuze equates the forces and the gods. But and then the relationality among these forces gods is the powers or potencies. Because of course potency is comes from the same it's it means you know it's potential, potentia in Latin, it's potency, it's it's force or power. So it's like you can almost think of the powers as the relational potentiality of these ontologically ambiguous, divine, semi-personal <laughs> beings. You know, just to sum up or go back to something you said earlier, it, it eschews metaphor, right? So it, it's not mere metaphors. And it also eschews mere allegory. It's not an allegory of the cave when we talk about Aphrodite. Um, or whichever god. It's also not an exactitude, right? Because even if it comes close, it could be analogous to an exactness in uh, A Thousand Plateaus. At least Deleuze and Guattari try to reserve the notion of the an exact for, for example, taking notions from science and importing them into philosophy. They're not exact. They're not inexact. And they're not analogies in any sense. They're anexact. So we'd have to come up with a word, something like anexact for these uses 
of gods. I mean, I, I guess that's why I was thinking, like, wouldn't they come closest to something like the role that conceptual personae play? Specifically because, as Deleuze himself says, the thinker who most, if not conceptualized, at least utilized conceptual personae was Nietzsche, right? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that, again, we see in Nietzsche this, this consonance, this resonance of... Um, these these gods as potencies and uh that kind of summed up my question and it and it kind of shows maybe a little bit it foreshadows perhaps a a work in the making that that you could be writing on you know this continuing from the subtitle of your work on the mythical dialectic you know going into this polytheism whether it be in Deleuze or or outside and this is another question I had but you know it made me think about how many how so many thinkers um I think Bergson said it best, but this question of thinkers only have one idea and they kind of, you know, they, they, they cycle around it. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not going to necessarily ask yet, at least if I do ask what, what is your one idea that you're cycling around, you know, whether, <laughs> whether it be integration or potencies, whatever. But I did want to know, like, what is a concept, not particularly necessarily one that you've created, although that could be, that's an additional question, but what is a concept you see yourself kind of coming back to and i wasn't going to allow you to say difference or integration that's cheating so what's a concept you see yourself kind of coming back to if not in your writing then maybe just just kind of a thought that strikes you and that that you see is almost like a strange attractor that like gets mm -hmm. you cycling around it i think this is another way of saying integration basically or differentiating integration which you know i, I think of is is resonant with it's resonant with this concept of the will to power and the eternal return. And so right. what I'm really interested in is Spinoza's concept of the will is that is that the will is composed of affects. It's it's motivated by the affects. And it's right. it's it's that the affects are the capacity for being affected. So it's it's emotions, but it's also it's also intimations of of conceptual domains that are just sort of right at the edge of our vision or that are also at a at a horizon of discernibility. So I think this, you know, this is where the concept of the transcendental becomes really important, especially in Deleuze. And it's sort of like he's he's sort of rendering more intelligible this Spinozan theory of the will through this concept of the transcendental. And so so what it, you know what it is is that the will is composed of affective potentialities. I mean, Deleuze says that um, Spinoza's whole philosophy is one of potentia. And so I think this is something that's often misunderstood in, you know, attributing Spinoza as a pure determinist, that he says that the will is determined. People often think of that as being determined in the mode of efficient causation, in the mode of just particles bumping into other particles. And so it's sort of like this mechanistic determinism right. in which we live in a in a fixed, eternal, static block universe in which there's no real becoming and everything is already given in advance. And so, so there's no distinction between efficient causation and final causation because one just pushes from behind and the other pulls from the future. But if everything is already given in advance, they're just two descriptions for this. This is, this is something that Bergson talks about in Creative right. Evolution. But I think what's really important, and that I think a lot of people miss, because um, I think Spinoza was very obscure, and he was still trying to sort this out for himself, and I think Deleuze really draws this out, and it's still very obscure, but I think he renders it more distinct, is that the will is determined by 
the essential nature. So the essences are the, the forms. So it's, it's formal causation that's determining the will, not primarily efficient causation, although efficient and Spinoza says that efficient and formal causation are parallel. But it's almost like, so basically what this means is that we're talking about these forces, these potentialities for becoming that lure us toward this transcendental horizon. That's, so those are the will. These potencies and the relationality of these potencies can be expressed in a lot of different ways. And so that's what, when Spinoza talks about freedom of mind or blessedness, he's saying that, I think this is what Deleuze, this is Deleuze's reading, and I think this is also Nietzsche's reading of Spinoza, um, because, of course, you know, Nietzsche, about halfway through his career, he read Spinoza and he said, I finally have a precursor. This is so mm. cool. But what he's... I what, found my father. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I don't know if he thought of Spinoza. No, I just meant yeah, I just yeah. meant, I just meant precursor. <laughs> uh, but 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 yes. Oh, so so freedom, freedom, freedom of the mind, not so, freedom of the will. Right? right. That's that's one of those concepts, and I think that it evinces the reality of the unconscious. Right. And I mean, Spinoza didn't use those terms. Right. But you're, yeah. but you're right. There's no. It seems as though, and I'll I'll let you finish your thought. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It, it just seems as though it would make sense that there wouldn't be an efficient cause in the unconscious as though we were, I mean, this is one of the Freudian displacements, if you will, the Copernican revolution of psychoanalysis, displacing man from the, from the center of, or consciousness, if you will, from the center of thinking. If the unconscious is determined and we are not master of the affects, we are not master of the will of you know, the unconscious has its own logic of which we are not sovereign, then that throws efficient causality out, out of the window. Anyway, that these affective potencies, they can be expressed at a lower or higher register. And that's mm-hmm. what, you know, it's blessedness or freedom of mind, because we have the freedom to choose at which register to express these affective potencies. So for instance, if you feel the affective anger, you can express that through through destructive violence in a reactive way, the, re- the reactive mode, you know, that it's this Nietzschean mm. concept, which I think is right. directly descended from Spinoza, or you can express it through active, you know, intellectual or creation or artistic creation or even athletic activity. And so so it gets complex, but Spinoza says that that everything is is determined to determined to express its essential nature in a certain way. But I think it's a misinterpretation of him to, to think of this, this word way, this certain way as a, like a minute, minutely specific configuration of mechanistic causation. But rather it's, it's a mode or manner of efficacy that can be expressed in different registers. But at the same time, efficient, it, efficient causation perfectly correlates with however those formal causes are expressed. But this is, you know, this is something that Bergson says, and Deleuze picks this up as well, is that causation can only be known after the fact. It can only be known in retrospect. So you can look at what what happened and you can you can see how all of the, the particles colliding mechanistically caused this whatever event it is to happen. But there's this this sort of um slippage or interstice where where choice resides. And I think, you know, this is, I think this is controversial even among Spinoza scholars. I think this is one of Deleuze's most subtle and interesting 
points about is that Spinoza, it doesn't deny, because that would be to deny a becoming, which would be really strange for, for Deleuze to be so right. deeply influenced by Spinoza. I mean, I think actually Einstein misinterpreted Spinoza. <laughs> wow, yeah. Einstein is you know, sort of the paradigm of the, the genius, of course, but and he's so brilliant. But he denied the reality of time. He insisted that that reality is an eternal block universe. And I think that he thought this was what Spinoza was saying. So this, this that just goes to show you that scientists aren't always that philosophically sophisticated. <laughs> They're interested in something else, let's just say. Well, right? yeah, I I mean, mean, otherwise, they would be philosophers. If they were creating concepts, right? Uh, yeah. They have other things to do. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I love science, but I think there's often this, there's often this attitude among scientists that they have this privileged, and this is something Stengers talks about extensively, that they have this privileged access to reality. And so that gives them sort of this authority to pronounce on philosophical matters as well. Right. And when you actually look at their, their philosophy, it seems sort of very somewhat simplistic and naive mo most of the time. This really interesting you guys know when you read Spinoza, he's he seems pretty straightforward when you when you first read him, and then you, you sort of go back and you think, wow, this it's the vertigo of philosophy. It's just this this depth that just draws you deeper and deeper into these thoughts, and that's why Nietzsche was so influenced by Spinoza, and then Deleuze was so influenced by Spinoza and Nietzsche. And so I think that one of the primary innovations that Nietzsche and Deleuze make on this conception of the will as composed of these formal potentialities, which are the affects, is to correlate them with the gods of polytheism. That's where my head is at right now. I, I'm actually working on a new book. It's in the early stages of working on a new book on this subject. So this is what I'm just, you know, this is what's inspiring me at the moment. That's great. And you, you wrapped it back into my previous question. That was a little bit of difference in integration, folks. That's how you do it. Hey, real, real yeah, quick, if I may. So, see, here's where the Spinoza chapter got me kind of thinking in a totally different, or it kind of generated some new ideas about, because I was thinking Taylor determination in the last instance was sort of the way, maybe that's my shitty understanding of determination in the last instance, kind of the way that Grant articulated this sort of- The freedom of the mind. Yeah, like they're not being, well, kind of this, there's a determination aspect, but not like it's not fully there's some type of degree of i don't know freedom is kind of a shitty way to right no I mean, it's not a shitty place way. I mean, it but i don't know that's kind of my novice understanding of determination in the last instance almost fits that description i don't know if that is worth uh digging into but i would say something i found out, interesting outside of the question of laurel the the term he's getting it from is you know he's getting it from mark singles right where yeah yeah the yeah. The, the base or the superstructure is determined in the last instance by the economic base. And I, I think that if we take base superstructure as a, as kind of parallelism in the sense of, of Spinoza, I think that's a very cogent way of, of reading it, right? That um, if in the last instance, will is determined by all of these affects at the same time, that doesn't determine our action. There's an interesting way in which Spinoza, like, if you will, like, you know, trisects the angle or like perfectly, like he he he's able to thread the needle by this this ancient and 
ongoing philosophical problem question of of the will and he's able to answer in this amazing way yes the will is determined but that doesn't mean determinism yeah and so i think that's where the how i would read the last instance in gotcha. your question and and i think grant explained it all i i think you're you're right to to pick up on on grant's reading and uh that was the that was the meat and potatoes of the spinoza chapter it was nice it was it was straight to the point so i give you credit on that grant that was that was good in terms of laura well it's just i just feel like we'd have to do a lot oh of, yeah right right we just have to like now we have to define all these fucking terms <laughs> that we'll just have to save that for for a laura well episode right. i mean you and or, or save that for me and you like yeah in terms of text messages and stuff it's an ongoing thing but i think i read your and i hope my base my, my base i'm using it <laughs> my my basic rendering of marks you know in terms of that analogy hopefully that makes a little bit of sense i don't know yeah i, I mean i think so if you're kind of talking about this like unconscious conscious mm -hmm. dialectical relationship they kind of determine one another but there's no like transcendent form or like response that you have to take to that determination i suppose or whatever your decision at the end is not determined like how you respond to the determination of the will per se yeah now you got me thinking about object cause and again <laughs> I, th I think that's another can of worms i don't want to open so yeah. we'll 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 but we'll i table I mean, that for now yeah i i, I do want to um I, i'm glad you brought that up and i think that it just to go back to a little bit of what you said, this gives you a chance, Grant, maybe to redeem yourself in, in the eyes of the scientific community. Since you put them on the on the hot seat, I asked you about a concept that you come back to. What about a what about a function in Deleuze Guattari search? Just what about a scientific idea? Just to be general about it, what about a whether it be an equation? I, I don't want to say equals mc squared. That might be a little too hackneyed for you but but some sort of scientific discovery or insight that outside of the realm of philosophy if you will but you can you can import it into it i'm just curious i'm thinking back to what i said earlier me and coop interested in dinosaurs so the, the even the existence of fossils is a kind of weird theological debate right so i, I I'm, I'm curious about your uh maybe your your response to that sure um yeah i'm, I'm actually I'm, I'm writing a chapter or writing a section on on Isabel Stenger's Cosmopolitics right now, mm -hmm. and she's talking about quantum mechanics. And yeah. I'm just, I've always been really fascinated by, by non-locality entanglement. It's just so fascinating to me that, that particles that are separated over vast distances can nevertheless be somehow communicating. And, you know, what's so interesting is that string theory posits that it's at least it's it's not you know empirically testable, but it's 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 a mathematical description that exists in eleven dimensions. And so you know, other than the four dimensions of space time, they have these they call them compactified or curled up dimensions, and that those correspond with the the forces of nature. And that, for instance, these non-local particles are entangled in more expansive degrees of freedom. And so, you know, I, that's, I'm, that's, I don't, I'm. But that's the, that's the I, relations of forces and the potencies that you were, you were discussing just a minute ago, except in scientific context, right? There's a continuity there. 
I kind of took scientists to task for for overstepping the bounds into philosophy a few minutes ago. So it's like I want to say that I'm not a, I'm not a scientist. I don't really understand quantum mechanics very well, but I find it fascinating, and I yeah. I do think that there yeah. are some very interesting and evocative correlations between quantum non locality and these other philosophical concepts we're discussing. But you see what I'm saying? I see a continuity when when you were defining the potencies and the gods and the relationality of forces, it, it, it translates. But yes, we get to be, I wasn't trying to embarrass you because obviously whenever we talk about science in a philosophical domain, I'm going to always claim an exactitude. I'm going to use Deleuze's <laughs> defense. Like it's okay. Scientists, you don't have to like go so Kyle and Brickman on us. Coop, was it, was it Dorothea Olkowski who kind of out of left field was like talking about quantum mechanics and then said like, you know, string theory, it's nonsense, bullshit, right? Like, <laughs> and also gave her opinion that like, if it comes down to Leibniz and Spinoza, you know, in terms of the I'm I'm Team Leibniz or something like that. I remember she was she was fantastic just giving those uh those opinions. Yeah, um, it's funny. I was gonna bring. I was gonna ask if uh, Grant had read any of her work. No, I thinking haven't. thinking back to that same thing. So, <laughs> I remember seeing seeing the episode, but no, I, I haven't. I haven't read her. She's definitely a a, a trip. She's great. I asked about concepts, function, you can see a, a pattern. So what about, uh, I mean, and we've been talking about affects. What about a percept? This ties into my fourth question. So what about kind of, and maybe even percepts, not even, I'll give you free reign on this, obviously. But what about, we can even say like an effective constellation, because this ties into the fourth question and already starts to answer it. It could be a work of art, I think would be perhaps the most fitting but it could have been an experience you've had walking it up. I mean, I, you know, I, I have to bring this in, in there because it's the primary thing I'm thinking about other than mm -hmm. philosophy these days is guitar pedals. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> great. Great. Go on. Go on. My kids sort of like to make fun of me, but they say that they're almost like the Legos or Pokemon for dads. But what's so great about guitar pedals is that they're like affects in a box and you, you by tweaking all the different parameters. The and modulation. Like, Modulate, yeah, it's modulation, and, mm -hmm. and you combine them in, in different ways, and there are these infinite variety of different ways that you can right. run your signal chain to create these sounds that produce produce these really, you know, that's what you know. It's like Nietzsche is talking about in the Birth of Tragedy is, you know, he talks a lot about music because it's it's music is is the art form that's I think most closely associated with with pure affect. With, yeah. with the evocation of the complexity of of affect, I'm obsessed right now. It's it's like it's it's almost like when I need a break from thinking about philosophy, I'll just go research guitar pedals for well, you know, an it's, hour or something. It's fascinating. I think it's he says it in the Abbasidaire and elsewhere, where you know Deleuze is pressed, or he he brings himself to think about the concepts that he created and he's thinking about his work in tandem with Guattari and he he mentions not only deterritorialization and makes fun of it for being a hard word to pronounce and <laughs> ugly but he mentions the refrain the retournel right, right? like yeah. that's that for him is is one of the first things that comes to mind is uh this little bit of organization of chaos if you will the warding off chaos that you know you see it re redeployed in what is philosophy not to i mean to speak of what unites the concept, the function, and the, the purse of affect are these little ways in which we sieve out chaos, right? And um, form a bit of consistency. So that's really good. And I guess now I get to ask you my 
my fourth question, which I think was a multi-part question, right? I, what was it? I, I asked, I asked a bunch of questions because I've asked about what, what concept you come back to, what function, what percept ethic you come back to. I guess I'm wondering about what are, if you want, you can, you don't have to answer, answer all these, but I'm just, what's a book, a movie, a poem, artwork that you come back to? Not necessarily, it could be, it doesn't have to necessarily be like the best, but like one that, like I watch Die Hard every Christmas because I'm I'm a, I'm a weird guy. I, I like it. That's, that's my Christmas movie, like catharsis, if you will. And 12 Monkeys is a movie I can rewatch a bunch. I know uh, what Lynch's Dune, Coop, and what were some other ones you, you like to rewatch? The Prestige is one. I the think. Prestige. I know you like Synecdoche, New York or whatever. But yeah, uh, Grant, I'm, I'm thinking about like a poem I come back to a lot is um, Obad by Philip Larkin. I work all day and get half drunk at night. You know, I could I could start reciting it, but uh, but yeah. Well, I mean, I guess any or all of all of this. Let's start with a poem. The one poem I have memorized is actually a poem that my mom also memorized, and I and now I, you know, when I read, I, I have an eight year old and a fourteen year old, so I still actually my my eight year old usually reads to me, but oh, every once in a while when when he goes to bed late, I just recite this poem to him because it's quick and if we don't have time to read books that night it's jabberwocky by lewis oh, yeah carroll. okay yeah yeah um, and of course you know delius talks about lewis carroll in uh, logic of sense arto's translation quote unquote of jabberwocky which oh, okay uh, do you remember when deliz brings up right, right arto yeah. starts to translate the jabberwocky and then it kind of just turns into that just these guttural nonsense words <laughs> by the way my dad that was a poem he would read to me oh cool that's a... yeah that was the poem he would read to me uh until i got a little bit older and then he started reading the lord of the rings trilogy at night but when i was young that was definitely a poem that i heard probably a hundred times or more i actually read i think just the the first the fellowship of the ring to my my older son Okay, there you go. I'm not I mean, sure if we actually made it all the way through that. Yeah, well, I mean, at a certain point, at a certain point, they're singing songs together. You know, they're they're going on their merry way. I mean, you could condense the hell out of that book if you if you wanted to kill its spirit, but if you wanted to get just the narrative, that's a short story, right? So yeah, yeah. Um, so let me see a, a movie. Um, so yeah, one movie I really love is The Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus by Terry Gilliam. That's one that really stands out for me. I mean, I've always loved Terry Gilliam. When I was when I was a kid, Time Bandits was one of my favorite movies. And you put I don't a price it. on your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great line. But anyways, yeah, that one's really great. I love. Uh, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan. My my younger son is named Dylan. So I mean, I love all of his music. But also the um, you know, I'm not there. That film that's where there are like what seven different actors or five a bunch of different actors playing bob dylan that's that's a great one i haven't seen it i'll have to put that on the list it's great I, I, i'm not surprised about the dylan because you you managed a way to to uh what to quote how does it feel right in the in the Nietzsche chapter right so uh but deliz himself says some some pretty cool things about bob dylan i think in dialogues it could have been negotiations i always confuse those two maybe it's yeah. negotiations where he kind of talks about wanting to give a um a lecture like bob dylan writes a song or composes a song something like that right you know yeah that was one of the moments when i was first reading Deleuze. i was like yeah. okay this all right yeah all right this guy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Supposedly, uh, Deleuze and Guattari met Dylan, and he invited them to smoke some cannabis, but they were afraid or something. I don't know yeah. if the story is actually legit See, or not, but this I is can't, what I've heard through the grapevine. I, I, I can imagine Deleuze being somewhat circumspect. I, I don't know. It seems weird that Guattari... Maybe he just was more into uppers, right? He right. was already, you yeah. know. I can see, I can see Deleuze being demure, but Guattari, I don't know. I mean, maybe he, <laughs> you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe Guattari could have used uh, a little bit more, more weed, but he was always doing things, right? So maybe it would have slowed him down too much. That's a really interesting question. I mean, somebody they made like a like a little sculpture for Guattari after his death. There was like where people put in significant things and someone put some magic mushrooms. Oh, there. So yeah. I know, I mean, I know he must have been interested in, you know, like Deleuze and Guattari's work is so psychedelic. I mean, it seems like really resonant with... You assume with they, they would have done some. Yeah, they must have. I mean, especially Guattari. But yeah, I, I always wonder, like, how how influential was, was cannabis on their thinking? I mean, we know that, that Deleuze... Was wrote, a drinker was a drinker yeah. yeah which to me it's like i don't think well when i'm drinking like as, as soon as i the first sip of wine hits my lips i lose all ability to talk about there's philosophy. a there, there's a kind of bell curve if you can you know sit in the pocket of that of that tipsiness and hold that then i think it can disinhibit you yeah. but obviously you get to a certain point then you either if you don't drink enough it keep going you get sleepy, but if you drink too much, you get sloppy. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. But yeah, I mean, the French in their wine, of course, drinking. Right. Yeah. You know. For me, it's like I've, I have these two primary activities. One is philosophy and the other is music. And so it's, you know, coffee goes with philosophy and alcohol goes with music. And so yep. it's like I have, yeah. it's almost like these two distinct modes that I can go into. And so I think I've just really through a lot of repetition come to associate, you know, alcohol with going into a musical mode and yeah. coffee with going into a philosophical mode. Totally understand that. Totally understand yeah. that. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Well, do you want to uh, quickly, cause I don't want to bore you too much. Uh, do you want to, you want to say a book or, or an artwork really quickly that you think, uh, you, you see your, still, <laughs> still this question of returning to, do you see a book yeah. that you return to? Do you see maybe, a, maybe a, a piece of art um, that you return to? Yeah, I mean, if if we're talking fiction, because we've been talking a lot about philosophy works, but fiction yeah. fiction works, yeah. One of the books that I that I introduced my my son to, which was my favorite book when I was when I was a teenager, is Magician by Raymond D. Feist. Which oh, okay, Feist, okay, yeah. You know, it's like so that that one and like you know the Wheel of Time were were some of my favorites. Oh yeah, so I, I, I got to introduce introduce my son to those books, which was really cool. So I've tried to get I've tried to get Coop into. Wheel of Time, but we're already reading so much uh, during the week that it's. But yeah, Wheel of Time is one of my my favorite series. Yeah, and I I need to return to it again. I got my wife turned on to it because she wasn't really a fantasy reader before then, and I don't think I've gotten her into Feist. I actually was introduced to Raymond Feist when I was young. There was this MS DOS game which is still good. I played it a few weeks ago. It's called Betrayal at Condor. Yeah, I had that too. You played the game? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so. A huge fan at the moment when it came out, so I had to get it like right when it came out. And I'm a big fan of like those kind of tactics strategy games, so um, yeah. I, I thought it was really well done. 
Um, Later, of course, I got I got deeply into you know literary fiction because I I did my my graduate stuff, so I got it really into Virginia Woolf and mm-hmm. James Joyce and A.S. Byatt is probably my favorite you know literary novelist. I honestly don't read that much fiction anymore. I I read yeah. maybe like one or two novels a year. I just mostly read philosophy at this point. That's our lot in life too. <laughs> philosophy and psychoanalysis. It would be nice to be able yeah. to. Well, I guess what was it? I just read Dune and A Song of Ice and Fire over there. You and go and over there. You go <laughs> playing yeah, the and, hits. Yeah, and he watches The Sopranos and The Leftovers, and so I'll, <laughs> I'll get a lot of. You should send me more uh, leftovers puns and memes. You, you are. It's like it's usually The Sopranos or Dune that uh that I get from this guy. So I need to do a rewatch. It's about yeah. that time. I read the first Dune novel. I, I I've always wanted to read more. I just have never gotten around to it. But it's it's great. So then the later ones are really where I mean it starts to pick up in the second book. The second, third, and fourth are where the philosophy sort of starts to be more interesting. I think since you have an interest in Hume, you know it might be you might find some of it. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of Jungian stuff. It, it seems in the in the Herbert lore. Herbert was he met these this couple. Ralph and Irene Slattery, who were, she was a Jungian analyst who she trained directly under Jung, I think, in Zurich. And then Ralph Slattery was a Freudian analyst. So I don't know. They became friends with Herbert and I think kind of exposed him to that world. So there's at least that kind of like grounding there. And I think that might be just the germ of what I find so fascinating relative to the types of discussions that Taylor and I are frequently having on the show. But that's, that's my, the, I'll end my plug there. <laughs> that's yeah, the Fro- that... Freudian boyfriend, Jungian girlfriend meme right there. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Grant. That, that's about right. The, the, Hillman actually has this great section of um, revisioning psychology where he talks about how Freud's main followers were all men, um, at least in the, early, in the early days of psychoanalysis. Right. And Jung's primary followers were mostly women, early followers. Uh, and they, they actually called them the Jungfrauen, which, you know, uh, oh, is, yeah. Is, is that the young, the young, the women, young women, but also it means virgins. There's definitely something to there being sort of a more as traditionally conceived sort of stereotypically feminine qualities associated with Jungian thought, as opposed to a more, you know, quote unquote, the qualities that have traditionally been associated with masculinity, I think are more associated with. Well, I mean, thought. Kinda, <laughs> you're alienating the the ladies with the penis envy uh concept <laughs> right so uh castration penis envy you know uh you know it makes sense to a certain extent the integrating the animus and the anima although freud from fleece you know got constituted bisexuality although he didn't outside of the letters didn't write about it too much later in his his life but no that's that's good i guess because we we brought up the the mythic dialectic and the gods and whatnot do you have a favorite myth i don't know if you ever read um what was it is it like what was her name bullfinch's guide to mythology was one of the things that i read as a kid which was why one of my introductions to to myths do you have like a, a favorite myth that you can recall it doesn't have to be greco-roman it could be i mean i, I recently read dolaire's I think I think that's how you pronounce it. Dolaire's Myths for Children to my younger. Okay, well, he actually read it to me. But oh yeah, uh, there you go. It's hard to it's hard to choose one. I, I mean, okay, so yeah, the what in the you know the the myth where that began the Trojan War, which is that 
the app with the Apple of Discord, which is you know, all right, okay, Eris, yes. Eris, you know, offering this this Apple of Discord and and forcing Paris to choose between the the three goddesses. I know it was Hera, Aphrodite, and uh, and Athena. Um, I think. And Athena. Okay, that makes sense. I wasn't sure. I couldn't remember. Yeah, yeah, but I'm I'm, I'm interested. I'm interested in Eris. So I, I like that. I like that myth. You don't hear too much about the goddess of strife. That's the one that I can think of off the top of my head. That's good. I like that. That's a good, that's a good myth. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, um, I don't know if you've ever read Gorgias's Encomium of Helen. I have not. Uh, but what I like about Gorgias's Encomium of Helen is that, you know, the Helen story sometimes feels a little bit about like the Adam and Eve story insofar as it, it feels like it's, you know, right at the surface, this this kind of misogyny for this question of of you know women, and you could think of it in the Pandora myth too, right? Like women being the cause of of all of all the strife and all the the evils. But you know, Gorgias, you know, he gives four defenses of of Helen, mm -hmm. and the last of which is the most interesting one, and which is why it's kind of still read today, and why it's like included in. Um, it may not be in the latest edition, but in my, uh, I think the second edition of the Norton Anthology of Theory and Criticism, it's like one of the first entries. It's like a short four page thing, but he he likens language to a kind of drug that like seduces us and, and kind of influences us against our will. So there's something interesting that one can, you know, see throughout the history of philosophy and his, just the theory of language this really interesting little kernel in gorgias anyway that's uh that was a, an excursus i already asked you about your theism which you you're going to claim polytheism for that i like that you get to an ontologically <laughs> ambiguous polytheism. an ontologically ambiguous polytheism. see i like that <laughs> yeah. what i used to say is that i'm, I'm an omnitheist an omnitheist i like which that. means which means that i i think that all forms of divinity have some efficacy including atheism mm, yeah. which i think is kind of what deleuze is, is sort of saying in in nietzschean philosophy where he says that pluralism is the principle of a violent atheism but he's also he's also saying that you know the gods have died but they've died on it died from laughing on hearing the one god claim to be the only one yes yes that, that's that's the nietzschean line right yeah that's yeah that's, yeah that's and that you know that that these gods are so, I mean, what Schelling says, which I, which I think is a really good way to think about it, is that that consciousness and the gods emerged coextensively. So we can't say that the gods existed prior to human consciousness because, you know, it's not like there are these gods who then created humans and, and it's the, this very clear causal, you know, linear causal relationship. But we also don't want to say that, I wouldn't want to say, and Schelling doesn't want to say that humans simply created the gods from their imagination and so that's, so, that's the that's the julian jane's bilateral consciousness kind of are you, are you thinking about that or or not uh, yeah I, th I think there are some re resonances with, with julian jane's there but yeah that, that we basically we emerged from primate animality and out of out of animism especially through the creation it was a co-creation of the gods but they the gods also created our consciousness right so you it's know it's kind of hegelian the the jane's thesis right this kind of exteriorization you know uh of these internal 
internal thoughts as a kind of command from the outside, even though it's, we could say it's a determinism of the will, right? It's, it's an interest. There's, there's a, there's a pseudo Hegelianism to that, that thesis. Yeah. That they would actually, that ancient people would actually hear the gods speaking to them. That, and that that, yes. That, right. That, yeah. And, and that that was, I read I read that book. Um, what is it? But, the but that, origins that, that, of that, consciousness and the kind of a breakdown of the bicameral mind, or yeah, right. Yeah. That, that whether, kind of reminded me of like Westworld season one, where that right, yeah, gets brought up. Quite I a mean, bit. what? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Coop. Oh no, I was just putting in a little sidebar there. Yeah, this, the way this, that the mm-hmm. uh, whatever that voice Arnold or whatever speaks to the to the hosts or what have you, and I think they even directly reference the bicameral mind in the first mm-hmm. season. But yeah. That's so all I, I mean, to add. yeah, the way that that the gods were extracted from from animism, which you know is the experience and encounter of the spirits of nature, it's an imminent, you know, and sold sold reality. This this encountered reality, and and it sort of lifts the gods up to, into a transcendent domain. Um, and their experience often in in correlation with the movements of the heavens then that moves into into you know Deleuze and Guattari talk about this um biunivocal relationship between the development of the monotheistic god and the ego so mm. it's mm. it's yeah, right it's, there yeah. that the ego was developed through the sustained you know sustained attention given to the god of monotheism first of you know jewish monotheism and then and then christian monotheism and and you know islamic monotheism it was through that you know again again it's a sort of this co-creation between the egoic consciousness and the monotheistic divinity and you can't really say which one is ontologically prior it's this this ambiguity because they you know what Schelling says is that they emerged coextensively well he says this about the gods of polytheism what's that word that i i generally don't necessarily like but it, it seems fitting here uh they're they're co-primordial right like uh right. <laughs> i know we've we've had you here for for a little while but i do want to give you and coop obviously i won't take the last question but i did want to give you the chance not only to answer perhaps if you could have expanded on your material what names or what what thinkers would you have liked to have added to integration and difference and then perhaps the last question I'll ask if Coop doesn't have anything uh, in mind, although I, I see you do have one. So after Coop, you can you can sign us off, maybe telling us a little bit about more about you've already told us about one, maybe one of the books you're writing right on mm-hmm. maybe on polytheism. But you could tell us maybe a little bit about what you've got going with uh, the book on Stangers. But yeah, I guess if you could have written more or do you feel like you left anyone out of what is, <laughs> well, it, I- is it 17 or is it 16? I'm trying to think of how many. I think it's thir- 13 figures. 13. I, I don't um, know where, where. I don't know. I was way off. But it's interesting because I I, I actually wrote five other chapters that I ended up. Having oh, there to you go. Because I'm a I'm a massive overwriter. I always write too much, <laughs> which is the problem I'm, I'm having in relation to Stengers right now, too. But yeah, I had five other chapters on Plato, you know, Heraclitus, Plato, Plotinus, Nicholas of Cusa, and Jean Gebser. And just in the interest of having to, you know, there was a maximum word count with the publisher, I ended up having to cut those chapters. But, you know, ultimately, I think that it made the book 
better. It made it more coherent because it was a little too. So like, what, Nicholas Nacuzzi? Oh, no, no, no. And there was also John, John Stewart. I did one on John Stewart Mill as well. Oh, wow. Well, you can, yeah, you, can always, yeah. you can always cut Mill. But uh, no, uh, <laughs> I, I was thinking of reading your, your book earlier um, the other day about Nicholas Acuza and what is it? Is it learned ignorance? Yeah, unlearned so, ignorance. So, so yeah. you would have maybe seen that in a little bit of that little dialectic of integration and difference? Yeah, I, I really see see Nicholas Acuza. And Deleuze says this about him, that he was sort of, you know, the transitional figure between um, between medieval and modern philosophy. I think that Deleuze could almost be seen as a as playing a similar role to Nicholas of Cusa mm-hmm. as the, in the transition between modern philosophy and whatever is whatever whatever after. we want to call it, whatever we want to call <laughs> whatever it whatever we're going to call that but yeah no yeah unlearned ignorance I, I I think that you know th- there doesn't as far as I can tell there doesn't seem to be any evidence that Hegel was directly influenced by Nicholas of Cusa but he, but he was really the the founder of. German, modern German philosophy, Nicholas of Cusa was. So I think that Hegel uh, must yeah. have been influenced by him because it's sort of like very similar to the Hegelian dialectic. In a lot there of you ways. go. Yeah. That's a great book, Unlearned Ignorance. What were the other questions? Oh, I just, I was thinking who you would add. Uh, so that, those are the five or six. Um, yeah, the six. <laughs> that, 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 that you might, that you might've added. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, I mean, obviously, the list could could go on, you know, indefinitely if if you wanted. Coop, I know that you added at least one question towards the end. So, I mean, this might be a little bit unfair to bring up at the end, but I was just curious, maybe if you have at least a little bit to say about in the Spinoza chapter, you brought up a bit about the relationship between immanence and the body without organs. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have a question per se. I just kind of wanted to maybe prompt you to maybe flesh out maybe some of your broad thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean if that's fair. So sure, I love it. This is this is the stuff that we're interested <laughs> in. <laughs> One really interesting thing about the body without organs is that in an interview, Deleuze says that he and Guattari never understood the body without organs in quite the same way. And so what I think is really interesting is that they equate the body out without organs with the Tao. And so, you know, the of Taoism, which is, you know, the true Tao, I mean, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the true Tao, right? <laughs> so it's almost like the body without organs that can sp- be spoken of is not the true body without organs. They equate it at various points, they equate it with imminence, Spinoza imminence, they equate it with the will to power. And uh, I, mean, I think I think there's some others I'm missing, but any but, you know, imminence, is it's the vertigo of philosophy, right? It's it's you know one of the I'm still you know it's it's one of the most difficult concepts to grasp. But the way I think about it is that the word eminence is defined. You can only define that word in relation to a concept of transcendence, of the transcendent, because something can only be imminent if it's imminent to something else. And I think the solution to this, this idea of pure eminence, is that is the the Kantian concept of the transcendental, which Deleuze, of course, appropriated. And in his, he called it transcendental empiricism instead of a transcendental idealism. So imminence is this idea, it's this idea of univocity, that there's only one world, that there aren't two worlds. There's not a transcendent world of forms that's wholly other, or the transcendent world of the divine that's wholly other from this imminent world. There's only one world. And 
Deleuze talks about this always receding horizon of discernibility. And so I think that's a really useful way to think about imminence is that transcendence isn't, it's not another place, it's not a location, but it's it's an activity. You know, we're talking about these forces, gods, the relational potentialities, the virtual potentialities that are at this, you know, transcendental horizon of discernibility. They're the impulses, the affective formal impulses that are luring us toward becoming and luring our thought. But they're at this horizon between what can be experienced and what is beyond experience. So, I mean, that's what the transcendental is. It's the transcendental is what can be thought beyond experience. And so, and so by thinking at this horizon of what we can conceive, we're actually pushing that horizon back or pursuing that horizon and expanding that horizon and bringing, bringing those virtual potentialities into actuality. And just to bring it around, that's what integration is. Integration is actualization. It's the bringing of these virtual potentialities into actuality. But it's not you know, a, a, an integration that's a, a return to perfect wholeness and oneness, which is sort of like the monotheistic version of this dialectical conception. I think that's why Deleuze says in Difference and Repetition that integration and differentiation with a C are synonymous, because integration is always a differentiation. It's bound up with differentiation. It's the method of dramatization that he draws from Nietzsche. And what what that is, I think, is, is it's a dramatization of the relations of different forces, gods. I mean, you know, they're forces and you can envisage them as gods. I think that's just really a useful way to think of them. And so that's what our consciousness is. That's what the will is, is, is constructed, constructively elicited from this relationality of divine forces, cosmic forces that reside at this transcendental horizon that can never be finally attained. Taylor, you were asking before sort of what's, what's your one concept that you always go back to. I mean, that's whatever you want to call this, that that's, that's what it is. This is the thing that I just keep returning to over and over again. Coop, you might say the same, the imminence and body without organs is, is something that you're. Oh yeah, totally. You're super interested in. Yeah, absolutely. I have kind of like a cockamamie take on like Leibniz and the body without organs that we talked. Was it Dan Smith? Yeah, it was, it was Dan. Yeah. We did the fold with Dan Smith. I think he kind of had a pretty good made it coherent if you're interested in that but i think the last question or we just want to give you the opportunity to discuss any what you're working on next if you want to discuss that at this point definitely feel free or if you want to plug any sort of you know your social media etc please feel free to plug your band yeah yeah that's right? <laughs> exactly that's that's strictly for for fun <laughs> all right um, i'm on twitter we we hang out there a lot so what is it? Is it just at Grant Maxwell? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just at Grant Maxwell. I'm wrapping up. Well, I've sort of, I'm getting close to wrapping up my my next book, which is called The Philosophy of Isabel Stangers, which will be published by Edinburgh University Press. I have way too many words on You gotta cut it down, right? You, you <laughs> I gotta cut that. it down. You gotta cut it down. Yeah. And and yeah. that's you know, I wonder how much primary or how much work there is out on her alone at least in english you'd think you'd be you might be one of those uh 
one of the few to have written on at least a book on her alone. I'm, I'm sure there, there's probably some essays. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I th- so I that's, that's, is, that's good. That's good. I think this is the first monograph on her. I mean, there are uh-huh. like, there's one other book that's, that's like a collaboration that has like some art elements and a lot of people have written about her. I mean, she's very influential, which is why of one of the reasons why I wanted to write about her because she's extremely influential, brilliant, but there's no book about her. So I've just been really spending a lot of time with Stanger's last couple of years. You know, hopefully I'll wrap that up in the next six months or so. And then after that, I'm planning on writing this this book on Deleuze and polytheism, which that's awesome. Yeah, that's sort of already percolating out there. Which you know, it's like I have to always just go back to those are my two probably my two favorite subjects. Do you think that's going to be with Edinburgh as well? Uh, because they they publish Deleuze often, or are you looking at another publisher? Or you're not at that stage yet? Maybe I'm not sure. I mean, it's like I'm I'm kind of wondering if it's kind of nice to like go with different publishers because you meet different people and you sort yeah. of are introduced to different, you know, milieus. So I'm not sure. We'll see, but I, I might go with a different publisher for this one. There you go. But it's still, it's still the early stages of that project. So, yeah. You've already got the Rutledge connection. So just in case you can, you can hit them up uh, maybe, or uh, anything else you would like to uh, discuss. I mean, you also mentioned a, a paper you had written uh, recently. You said it was on maybe a, Maybe a contradiction in Nietzschean philosophy. The... No, it's it's just about Deleuze's all of Deleuze's mentions of polytheism in Nietzsche. Okay, philosophy. okay, so that, that's just explicating that that'll form part of the the new book. Yeah, it'll be. I think one of the chapters. That was the test drive, <laughs> the test run. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's great, Grant. I appreciate you spending uh, two hours with us and um, diving into these these topics. You know, it's when I when I first did this twenty questions thing. I was thinking, well, this might be superficial, but I knew in my heart that it would open up to uh, to the conceptual nitty gritty, and yeah, hopefully, hopefully that was uh, it was it was a little bit of fun interspersed with the with the serious. Um, yeah, we always strive for. But uh, Grant, I appreciate you uh, you being with us today and coming back and braving the uh, the fire, if you will. Uh, no, <laughs> let's keep in touch. I think that this episode will probably drop sometime next weekend and so I'll, I'll definitely if i haven't talked to you before then i'll let you know when that when that does excellent yeah thank you guys so much for having me it's always a pleasure to, to talk to you and to see what you guys are up to on you yeah. know on twitter and everything so i really i really appreciate what you guys are what you guys are doing i appreciate that and you're uh you're the first guest of the new year well actually yeah, technically right? the first episode of the new year right because we we, yeah, we recorded record Heidegger last year. We recorded about Heidegger on the 31st on New Year's. Oh, right. That's yeah, true. on New Year's <laughs> Eve, day Eve. It was interesting. I was, and you can cut this out, Coop, if you like, but uh, so many of your footnotes in, in Integration of Difference are, you know, just the citations. But in that opening chapter, you're like, you know, I, I could have, obviously Heidegger is hugely influential for a lot of these thinkers, but I'm, yeah. I prefer not to write about a Nazi. And I was like, that's why it's been four or five years. And Coop and I have never really covered Heidegger, besides some offhand mentions, usually disparaging from me. So I, I figured it was it was time to give him, you know, give him an episode without too much disparagement. I don't think I was I was too rude to him, even if he may deserve it. But in any case, I I, I just remember that footnote rereading your book. And I was like, I was like, oh, OK, that's that's all that needs to be said. I think anyone, you know, working in these areas should read some Heidegger just to have a sense of what he's doing. But yeah. That was just a decision I made at some point. I was like, 
I could really go down this this rabbit hole and spend years why? reading Heidegger. And I was like, because I mean, you know, it's like I really think that that there's a deep resonance between the personal life of a philosopher and their right, work. Right. Like, you know, Deleuze talks about this in relation to Spinoza and in relation to Nietzsche. So I just don't think it's possible that that Heidegger's work wasn't in some way resonant with his fascism. I actually read read that book Heidegger and Ruins um, a while back. I, ha- I haven't looked at it yet. Is that is that Wolin's book? It's, yeah, it's a it's 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 is pretty, it? I mean, it's it's really it's a fascinating book, and I think it's just sort of incontrovertible that he was a a believing card carrying Nazi. He wasn't just he wasn't just <laughs> you know just, he didn't just he he didn't just take take advantage of it that one year of his rectorship and then right okay yeah he was a true believer I think. yeah. There you go. Yeah. But maybe uh, that means that we won't have to talk to Heidegger for another four years. So every, <laughs> every leap year or maybe something like that, we'll, we'll do a Heidegger episode. Um, yeah. I spent way too much time reading all of this secondary literature on the essay concerning technology. And I don't know why I do this shit to myself, because it's just like at a certain point, why go down that rabbit hole? But anyway, that was an aside. Grant, we're going to stay on uh, just to discuss next week's episode and um, do some some debriefing. But uh, we really appreciate you today and enjoy the rest of your uh, your Sunday. All right. Thanks, guys. It's great to talk to you. All right, Grant. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Once again, thanks to Grant Maxwell for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. We'll see you all next week. The very rules of eating of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is